0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So if you've been here with us at any length of time, you know that it's our typical mode of operation to walk through books of the Bible. So... Today we're going to be continuing in 1 John chapter 4, and we've been walking through 1 John this Advent season, just taking big chunks of it at a time. And, uh, and our aim is just to understand, you know, what God is saying through these letters. We want to elevate our hearts, our affections, our minds to think and dwell on who God is, that He's the God of light and the God of love. So we'll be in chapter 4 this morning, as Trevor um, has mentioned, uh, you know, John writing in his letters, he's... Um, it's not what we're used to seeing as in other parts of the New Testament where we have these linear thought progressions. But it's as if John is taking a few themes and just spinning them in his hand like a cube. And he's trying to help us look at it from a couple different angles. So it might seem that each week we're all saying the same thing. And in fact, we are all saying the same thing. But we're just trying to look at it a little bit differently, just like John does. And so this morning, I just want us to keep spinning that cube I want us just to to continue to to look at this passage and look at what John has for us. And we'll trust the Lord to bless it and teach us and and hopefully encourage us. So this morning, um, kind of the pathway we're going to take and what I want to do from an order standpoint is I want to first just consider what it means that God abides in us, that God dwells in us. And then after that, I just want us to look at three points of exhortation from the text this morning. So, uh, before we go any further, let's pray and ask, ask God to help us. Father, would you help us? Would you help us understand your word? Would you help us to love your word, to love your people? Um, and Lord, we, just, we need you to open your word to us. Um, help us to rejoice in the God of light and the God of love. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we start, just kind of uh, by way of introduction, you know, whenever we read our Bibles... Whether it's in the morning when you wake up, when we're here at church, whatever it might be, it's very helpful to understand who's writing the letter or the book, and who's he writing to, and what's he writing about. And so, uh, just by way of reminder, Trevor covered this a few weeks ago, you know, John's writing to a group of believers who are experiencing difficulties due to men and women falling prey to false teaching. You've heard us allude to Gnosticism throughout the series. It was a, a heretical teaching during that day that considers physical creation evil, i.e., God cannot be Jesus, because Jesus is a physical being. <clears throat> and it's also got an emphasis on like individual spirituality as, rather than adhering to the church teaching uh, or to church authority. And so these individuals, these Gnostics, were stirring up dissension among the Christians. So these are the ones that John says earlier, they were among us, but were not of us. These, are, these people were among them. So think about that. They were men and women in the congregation who shared the table with each other. They knew one another, but then they begin to follow errant teaching. And ultimately, they walk away from the faith, is what John tells us. But they didn't just walk away and leave everything behind. They're, they're continuing to stir up dissension, factions amongst the Christians. So John's writing to the Christians in this epistle to remind them, he says, don't forget who God is, right? Remember who God is, what he's done, and who you are because of that. Over and over again, John, like a father, is pleading with his children to know that God is light, that God is love. Make your salvation sure. Remember your true love. Walk in the light. Have confidence in your salvation. These are things we see over and over and over again in the book. And I think it's very important for us to consider this and to kind of get our arms around this. Because while it's probably been coming for some time, it would seem that we're heading very fast for an environment like this in our own culture. Even here in the Bible Belt, the cultural necessity and advantages of belonging to a local body or to a church are becoming null and void. We're heading fast for a society where those who are among us will capitulate to the teaching of our world. And they will go out from among us. But they will also try to pull people with them. They'll take the word of God and twist it ever so subtly and try to take you with them. I do think often, I pray often for Ridgewood Church, um, that, that the Lord would keep us from being that frog in the boiling pot of water, you know, where it just keeps heating up and he doesn't even realize it, and just slowly you get killed. Um, man, I I ask that God would help us to be a people that holds fast to his word, a people that knows God, that loves God, loves his people, a salty people, right? A people of light. And I think that's what John's calling his hearers to as well. So as we consider First John, um, I just want to zoom in first, like I said, on, on this idea that God dwells with man. So, so one of the things that John seems to focus on and he wants his people to know is that God abides in them and they in him. Now, something interesting that I noted as I was preparing for this, you read commentary after commentary, you listen to some sermons and things like that. Um, and, and one of the things is that very few people actually focus on the idea that God dwells in man. So, the attention is all put on the fact that we abide in him, right? Remain in him. Um, that he's the vine, we're the branches, and all that's good, and all that's very true. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if we pause for just a moment and consider the phrase that God abides in man, or that God dwells in man, he abides in you. The word abide is, is frequently used in John's letters, more than any other epistle, more than Paul, anyone else. Uh, and it carries with it the idea of remaining or dwelling. Think of like dwelling in your house, living in your house. God abides in you. And I don't know about you, but this is one of those things that I often, I think, without realizing it, just skip over it or read past it. I'm not sure if it's because it's one of those like difficult things to understand, so I just try to like make my way as fast as I can through the Bible to something I do understand. Um, or if it's like one of those things where, like I just can't tangibly see that God dwells in me. Like I can't just be like. Oh, there he is. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Um, you know, and so, so often I'm just reading through the Bible, and I just pass right over the fact where it says, God abides in you. But it should grab us, right? I mean, it's not just some passing statement. In fact, as you actually look at the Bible in totality, the dwelling place of God becomes one of the most prominent themes to trace from creation. Think about it, the God of the universe, the God that hung the stars in the sky, the God that Job says his voice is thunder, you know, he's clothed in eminence and majesty, that God, John is saying, dwells in you. It's not a small thing. John tells us in verse 13 in 1 John 4, he says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. So now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the dwelling place of God, it really is kind of a fascinating theme to track throughout the entire Bible. One can make an argument That it's how the book begins and how the book ends. So, but for today's purposes, um, we're just going to try to skip a rock across this topic, okay? I've never actually successfully skipped a rock in real life, so we're going to try this today. Um, But I do want us to walk out of here today having some idea of what John is thinking about when he stresses the significance of God dwelling in man. So what I want to do is we're just going to walk through the Bible together. Reagan joked earlier, he said, we should just start reading in Genesis for the scripture reading. I said, well, we're actually going to kind of do that. Um, So here we go. So let's start at the beginning. All right? So just put your thinking caps on with me and just follow with me here, okay? We're just going to kind of, we're going to take a thread and we're just going to string it through all the way. So, the Garden of Eden, gardens of beautiful creations, full of trees, water, precious stones. We know that God's creation was very good. We know that God walked with man in the garden, Uh, I think it's safe to infer that there was a sense of fellowship between God and man in the garden, right? They knew one another. They spoke to one another verbally. But then what happens? Sin happens, right? Adam and Eve sin. They plunge the entire human race race into separation from God, and they're removed from the garden. They're separated from God. And think about it. The way that God now dwells with man is different, right? So before they're in fellowship with one another, now they're separated. Something's been fractured. Why? Because God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And now darkness has entered into the world. So the manner in which God interacts with His creation, it's broken, it's fractured, and now we begin the journey of redemption, right? Which has, in many ways, a lot to do with God removing the darkness and restoring fellowship. You think about, like, Romans 8, like, even creation's groaning for our revealing of adoption. It sounds like everybody's waiting for this fracture to be fixed. So we move on past the garden. We see God interacting with man through a variety of different mediums, right? God's no longer walking alongside man, but we see like the patriarchs, like Abraham, uh, Jacob. They're making altars and sanctuaries, trying to figure out a way to commune with God. Kind of an interesting note. It's not exclusive, but almost every case of them building these sanctuaries and altars happens at a place called Bethel, right? The house of God. They go to the house of God to try to meet with him, okay? During the time of Moses, we see the uh, (coughs) Levitical priesthood. They established the Ark of the Covenant. Um, supposed to symbolize God's presence among his people. Again, vastly different than the close fellowship we saw between God and Adam. (coughs) God is always at arm's length from his people. Access to God comes via some type of mediator. Eventually, we see Solomon. He completes the temple. Think about that, the dwelling place of God. Started by his father David, again, it's, it's a place where God is to come meet with his people. God comes into the Holy of Holies, but it's still a distant transaction, right? It still requires a mediator. It requires something to gain access to God himself. There's separation there. So if you think about it, during this time, God is communicating via the priests and the prophets to his people for thousands and thousands of years after the fall, right? It's always distant, Always separate. And then we know, following the prophets, there's a period of silence, right? 400 years of silence. Think about that. It's longer than America's been around. 400 years of silence. God not speaking. But then what happens, right? Jesus comes. Advent happens. And you remember how John describes him in chapter 1? He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's dwelling among us now. So Jesus has come. The God who for thousands of years interacted with his people via priests and prophets sends his his son, his only son, the perfect and ultimate priest, the perfect and ultimate prophet. The writer of Hebrews tells us, you know, he says, uh, God spoke to us long ago, the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is not just a symbol, but he's the reality that God no longer dwells with his people at an arm's length, but that he now dwells and interacts with them differently. And this is why we celebrate Advent. This is why we celebrate Jesus coming to the earth. It's a time where we're reminded that God is no longer far from us, but that he's near and his nearness is our good. So how significant is it that God sent his only son, the second person of the Trinity, to dwell with us? But it doesn't stop there. Jesus in his ministry tells us that he has come, but this is not the completed version. He's inaugurated a new age, and one day that age will find completion when he comes again. But in the, in, the between, in between now and then, God has not removed his son from us and left us alone. He hasn't gone away and created distance again, right? Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, he says, It is to your advantage. It is better for you for me to go away so that I might send who? The Comforter. The Holy Spirit. Think about that statement. Jesus says, hey, it's better if I'm not here. So there's something better about Jesus not being here and the Spirit being sent out to us. We've been studying that uh, in in, in the the book of Acts, right, about the, the Holy Spirit being poured out. So again, we've got God dwelling with man in the garden. It's severed by sin. Now he's meeting and communicating via mediators in incomplete ways for thousands of years. And then God the Father sends his son Jesus, who is God dwelling with man again, but it's not complete. And Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And he gives us direct access to God the Father. That's the entire book of Hebrews, right? We now have access to God. People didn't used to have it. We've been seeing that, like I mentioned in the book of Acts, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is where we find ourselves today. It's where John finds himself encouraging believers who are facing hard times. They're facing false teachers. And he's saying, remember, God has given us of his spirit, and God himself dwells in you. He dwells in us. You know, it's important to remember the Bible's not written in a vacuum. John's not writing in a vacuum. John knows Jesus, and he knows the Old Testament. And the idea of God abiding and where God lives and He dwells, it didn't come out of nowhere. But it's rooted in a deep history that's been unfolding since the beginning of time. So just just one practical note here before we go into the points of application. When you're doing your daily Bible reading... um, I think it's important to remember, you don't have to be a PhD or a seminary student or a scholar to get this. This book was not written for seminary students. It was written for everyday people with everyday problems and struggles. And so just a helpful tip, when you're reading this book, especially with today's technology, um, you come across keywords like dwelling, abiding, holy, shepherd, all these kind of things. Quick word search and just trace it. Just start at the beginning and go all the way through and see how the Bible and history unfolds these ideas. It's fascinating to watch it unfold. Anyways, uh, back to 1 John 4. So God dwells in us. Let's not go past that. So now I just want to explore three points or three exhortations that John gives us in these passages. First point, God abiding in you gives you confidence to overcome the world. Looking at verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world, still to this day. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because what? Greater is he who is where? in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So God abiding in you gives you confidence to overcome the world. Excuse me. We've alluded to this over the last couple of weeks, but false teachers are coming in. So John in this letter is addressing a very specific heresy among his people. But I think it's safe to say that John wants to remind all of us that the world is at war for your mind and your soul. There are many false prophets, many false teachers out there still to this day. The spirit of the Antichrist is active. And it's active in the false teachings of the day. And if we think about John's time, these are not men and women that are atheists. Where there's just a clean battle line drawn. Like they are over there, we're over here. These folks used to be among the Christians. And now they're taking a particular element of the faith and they're twisting it for their own devices and they're leading people astray. We see this today, right? Um, Many of you are probably familiar with the term deconstruction. That word is used to describe what the internet says is a cultural phenomenon within American evangelicals in which Christians rethink their faith and jettison previously held beliefs and often no longer identify as Christians. Friends, this is not a cultural phenomenon. It's been happening for thousands of years. These are men and women that are twisting the faith and walking away. Don't get sucked into using the worldly terms and say, oh, they're just deconstructing for a period. They're walking away. Call it what the Bible calls it. The Bible says they're walking away. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with exploring the faith. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with verifying this whole thing. There's no problem in that. But that's not what we see here with a lot of folks these days. We're seeing a repeat of history where worldly thinking and philosophies are hijacking people's minds and hearts. And they just walk away, proving they were never among us. I heard a well-known Christian apologist on a podcast discussing how he got interested in discussing things like critical theory, gender theory, and etc., which seems to often be tethered these days by people walking away. And he said that he noticed in his local church people began to yield on several issues, most notably about sexual, sexual ethics. And within months, months, they were no longer calling themselves Christians. Months. Again, let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with considering the faith. But in my experience, folks who are walking away, they're not interested in a better understanding of their faith, but they're interested in twisting the faith to accommodate themselves, their own feelings, and their own thoughts. The world is at war with us. We see the world at war for our mind in other ways too, right? I'm not going to try to harp on social media too much, but today's Instagram prophets and influencers, they poison our minds with wrong thinking too. Thinking uh, that perhaps seems harmless until it drips on you for years and years and years. It's subtle things, right? Like God is most concerned about your happiness. Having a hard time? Husband's not a good guy? Leave him. God wants you to be happy. Kids are hard? Push them off to other people. God wants you to be happy. Right? Um... You know, but happiness, it's it, according to, again, I don't even have Instagram, but from what I can tell, it seems like it's achieved in getting the perfect picture of your family in a field with the hats and the flowers and the sunlight and all that stuff. No one's capturing the two hours beforehand when you're at each other's throats trying to get there, um, right? Um, it's, uh, happiness is found in being a world traveler, you know, like, oh man, look, they're all over the world. That's what I got to do to be happy say things like the only thing that matters is your happiness, pursue happiness. You know what? God wants you to be happy. He really does, but he wants you to understand that ultimate happiness is found in him, that he is the fountain of all delights. Ultimate delight is found in him. It's not found in creating the perfect moment that you hope finds approval by the Internet masses. I, I do wonder how many people in today's world are more concerned about what type of Instagram story they can make or picture they can capture rather than enjoying their family, real conversation with real people, or just enjoying God's beauty. Sarah and I were at the beach a couple months ago, and uh, it really was an incredible sunrise that came up. I mean, it was like better than your average sunrise, you know? So everybody's out there with their cameras, taking, I'm like, hey, I've got an iPhone. It only has two cameras, not three, but it does have portrait mode. I'm like, I got this, you know? and. Uh, and I look around, and I, I see, you see people, heads down, doing something. And I'm making assumptions here, but I'm assuming they're posting this, right? They're posting this out there. And I'm sitting there like, what are you doing? The real thing is right here. Like, I've only got two cameras, and it doesn't do a good. you got three cameras, it still doesn't do a good. Like, the real thing is here. I don't know. It seems like we are more concerned and feel obligated to get this thing on the internet rather than just enjoy the moment, enjoy what God has actually created. That to me says it's all about us, our Instagram. And it's possible to to be so consumed with yourself that God gets removed from the picture. Now it's possible you're thinking, what does this have to do with the exhortation of having power to overcome the world? Is this just Zach on one of his soapbox? Perhaps. Um, But hear me say this. The world is at war for your mind and your hearts. The devil is real. And while he's been defeated, he still operates in this world through false teachers. And it's not always, and most often won't be the obvious ones. We could easily point to the faith healers and the prosperity gospel teachers, but it's the subtle messaging that poisons you over time. We could say that about a million things. Things like, oh, is this your truth? What is your truth? You should just, you know, this is my truth. You can have your truth, right? It it probably seems harmless when you say it out loud. Maybe even sometimes seems reasonable. But thinking like that is poison. And one day it leads to you coming to a hard text in this Bible and saying, that's not my truth. It's a slippery slope from there, folks. All of a sudden we're heading downhill. There are many false teachers out there You remember what Jesus said about false teachers? You think I'm being a little harsh? He said, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and jump in a river. That's the God of love telling you that. Jesus doesn't take it lightly. John does not take it lightly in this letter. We should not take it lightly. Let's be a people that pays attention, a discerning people. Remember what he says in verse 5? They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Let's be a people that can distinguish the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. And let's also have the confidence to overcome it. Verse 4, he says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God overcame it. Think about the devil in the wilderness with Jesus. He's tempting God himself with the very Bible. You think it's possible that people can twist the scriptures ever so subtly. Here's the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness with the word of God, and yet Jesus overcomes it. You remember what Jesus says when talking about the end times, and you're going to stand before leaders and rulers and things like that. He says, don't be anxious beforehand about what you will say, but say whatever is given to you, for it is not you who speak, but who? The Holy Spirit. Even when the world thinks you're weird, and the world hates you, or you lose your job because you hold fast to a particular conviction, you are the son and daughter of the king, the king who has overcome this world, and the king that now dwells in you, his Holy Spirit, the one who will give you what to say, is now in you. It's been given to you. You can, with confidence, overcome the world. So point one, God's abiding in you, gives you confidence to overcome the world. Second, God's abiding in us empowers us to love one another. Let's look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." skipping to verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So as we look at these verses, again, we're kind of, we're seeing John's literary style here, right? He's, he's going to write more like a poet, where he's just going to circle around some main ideas rather than just giving us The logical way to look at it. So my brain doesn't function like a poet. And uh, so it helps me just to kind of reorder a little bit here and get, get the train of thought going. So if we start with the main idea that God is love, love is summed up in Jesus, God's son being sent for us, being put on a cross to die for those that didn't deserve it, right? He says that here in his love, here's the summation of love, God sending his son. This God now lives in you, Therefore, if he abides in you, you also will love one another. And you're going to confirm that you both know God and that you've been born again. So let's think through this together. God is love. He's love. It's part of his very essence. John's not saying he's loving, although he is. He's not just using a mere adjective to describe God. But this statement tells us that that love is one of God's immutable attributes. It's who he is. It's his very being. It's one of the things that makes him God. And as I ponder on this, Sarah and I were talking one morning, and I was just getting frustrated because I'm like, who can do this? I mean, seriously, who's going to describe what it means that God is love? It's like, I feel like you could spend lifetimes doing that, and I've got five minutes to try to convey something meaningful that we can walk away with. But perhaps that's the answer. Right? P- perhaps there is a benefit in us just leaving that statement right where it is and walking out of here, considering, pondering, rejoicing, thinking in the reality that God is love. That the God that dwells in you is love. And by Him, the God of love dwelling in you, you now have a power to love. Brothers and sisters, God's put the very essence of His being on display in Jesus Christ. When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God has made us alive. One of my favorite hymns states, "It says we've raised our clenched fist." You just think about this act of rebellion and anger. It says, "But God opens our hands to receive His gift." You and I only deserve death, but God, in His kindness and compassion and love, provided another way. He provided the Son who pays our debt. John talks about this in chapter 1. He says, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is righteous. In God's courtroom, you stand condemned until Jesus stands up, and then you are free. So how can we not love one another? That's what John's telling us, right? Look what God has done. How can you not love one another? John's speaking to the household of God. He's speaking to us and exhorting us to love one another. He's saying this is who God is. It's part of His very nature. Now He's in you. Look what it took for Him to dwell in you. He had to send His Son to die on a cross. Therefore, go love one another. And it can be very difficult. Jim detailed this last week in his sermon. If you um, missed it, go back and listen to it. And like Jim said... Brothers and sisters, let us excel still more at Ridgewood Church in loving one another. We're growing in numbers. Praise the Lord. But frankly, regardless of numbers, there's going to be people in our congregation that have personalities that might rub us the wrong way. My personality might rub you the wrong way. I can't see that actually happening. I imagine everyone loves my idiosyncrasies. Um, But it's possible, right? There's going to be people that rub us the wrong way. You're going to get excited about a ministry... And you're going to want everyone to join in with you. And when they don't, you might get a little frustrated. You might get a little bitter. You're going to look around the room and see people that have things you don't have. Whether it's money, kids, relationships, whatever it might be. And it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy in those situations for our old man to rear its ugly head. Sow seeds of bitterness, frustration, anger... And what John is telling us here is he's saying, fight. Remember God. Remember that he is love and he gave his only son that you might have life and that you might love one another. Put away the thoughts of bitterness. Ask God to help you love like he loves. You remember how God loves? He's patient. He's kind. it's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Ask God to help you love like he loves. It's a supernatural love. It's not natural. John's calling us to a supernatural love. Anybody can love an easy person. It's the difficult person that we're called to love. This is a love that says if your brother and sister has a need, you might just give up your vacation. You might just give up whatever want you have or whatever little sliver of American comfort we have because we're going to care for others. Let's be a people, Ridgewood, that's so raptured with the love of God that we put it on display for all the world to see. We talk about evangelism a lot here. We want people that share the gospel. We want to make that a priority. But don't forget that one of the central ways Jesus tells us we make God known in Greer is that we just love one another. John 13, he says, People will know you're my disciples. How? By you loving one another. The God of the universe has sent his spirit to dwell in us, and he's empowered us with a divine, supernatural love. So, God dwelling in us gives us confidence to overcome the world. It empowers us to love one another. And lastly, it gives us confidence in the day of judgment. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. One day we will all stand before the maker of heaven and earth. One day we will all face judgment. And for the person who is not in Christ, this ought to be terrifying. You will find yourself face to face with the God of light, in whom there is no darkness. For the Christian, for those in whom God dwells, that day is the complete opposite. It's the day when we behold our Savior for who He really is. It's the day we've all waited for, the day we've all longed for, where the God of love is finally with us. And John is telling us, have confidence in that. Have confidence that you are His and He is in you. Have confidence in the judgment day. Because if we do have that kind of confidence, then we have the ability to live this life with no fear. No fear. What can the world do to us? Will they kill you? You're in Christ. Will they take everything you have? You're in Christ. What can man do to you if you have this kind of confidence, this bedrock to hold on to? Christ is in you. So it really sums up one of the questions John wants to answer in this letter. How can you be sure you're a Christian? How can you know? Over and over again in this passage, he's like, "You want to know that God abides in you? Do these things." How can you know that God dwells in you? You ever ask those questions? I do all the time. It's kind of interesting, though. It's not some complicated formula. John tells us, "Do you believe in Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you love your brothers and sisters even when it's difficult?" These are the types of things that demonstrate you know God. It's not a works-based salvation. It's that once God dwells in you, the old man is passing away and the new man is here. And that new man is characterized by certain things. Loving your brothers, knowing God. These are the fruits of a work that God has done in you. You cannot do this. It's not that you love God first. It's that he loved you and sent his spirit to dwell in you. And you now have the ability to live. And we will not always do this perfectly. But does your heart desire those things? You kind of feel it in your bones? Does your heart maybe find itself in like a, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I want to love, help me to love. I want to know you, help me to know you. Even when every fiber of our being just seems to want to do the opposite, is there something deep down inside of you that longs for those things? Brothers and sisters, we can have assurance that we are God's and that he dwells in us. For those of you that don't know Christ, for those of you that all this sounds foreign to you, I hold up for you today the God who is light and love. Like I said earlier, if you don't know him, that should be the most terrifying thing I can say. If you do know him, it's the most beautiful thing I can say. And what I mean by that is this, God is light. John has told us that. God is the most glorious and beautiful being, and in him there is no darkness. So if you're not in Christ, if you have not confessed that Jesus is Lord, then you're in darkness and you cannot have fellowship with him. If you have not confessed that Jesus is Lord, then you will learn that God is love by experiencing the full wrath of his justice. You will understand in that day that you have committed cosmic treason and your only escape from the wrath was the love of God, but it will be too late. But here's the good news. It's not too late. It's not too late. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Confess that he's your only hope in life and death and believe on him, and you will be saved. You will be saved if you do that. And God will dwell in you. And the God of light and love will become the most glorious thing in your life. Not in the, you know, flowery, the, you know, everything's like, you know, you're walking down the street, you know, and it's a beautiful day and everything's going on. That might happen to you. But he becomes the most glorious thing in the sense of all of a sudden you find yourself like the psalmist being like, ah, your nearness is my good. Like, your nearness is really the only thing I want. Whom have I in heaven but you? Lord, let your face just shine on me. That's what I want. That's the heart of the believer. Believe on Jesus. All right, let me close with this. Um, Earlier we skipped a rock. Genesis to John's time to our time. Looking at how God has dwelled with his people. And we see that the Holy Spirit now dwells in the hearts of his people. But that's not how the story ends. You see, it all started with God in the garden with his people, and sin fractured that relationship. But the story ends with God in a new garden, dwelling perfectly with his people forevermore. Look at Revelation chapter 21. I saw no temple in it, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. Remember, temple, dwelling place of God, Old Testament. Here, John, same John, is looking. He's having a vision. He sees no temple. For the, Lord, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. God is light. He dwells with man. Later in chapter 22, you get this tree and this picture of the river of life and the, and the, the, the leaves that are healing for the nation, just this symbol that we return back to the garden and we find our rest and our healing and God is there with us and he's the God of light and the God of love. So brothers and sisters, behold the God of light. One day he will come again and he will restore us to perfect fellowship with him. And he will not only dwell, or he will no longer dwell in us, but he will dwell with us perfectly. So we can go. We can have confidence in overcoming the world. We can love with the supernatural love. And we can live without fear because he's in you. And that's how we celebrate Advent this year. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people that are confident. They're confident in the work that you've done through your son Jesus. They're confident in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that he now dwells in us and we can love with a supernatural love and we can overcome fear, fear of death because we can have confidence in the day of judgment that you will hold on to us and you will hold us fast. So Lord, as we go through this Advent season, would You be near to us? Your nearness is our good. We want to dwell on You. We want to enjoy all these things around us, but we want to we want to enjoy them knowing that all true happiness and joy is rooted in You. So Father, thank You for this word. May You teach us. May You encourage us from it. We pray these things in Your name. Amen.